Hello, everyone, and welcome to DataFem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and I'm so excited to welcome you to episode two of season two of DataFem, where I spent an hour with three of my friends talking about pride and queer representation in data science and how that trickles down into our models, a bunch of amazing stuff. And so I know you will enjoy this. And I know that some of you have been great about engaging on social media using the hashtag datafem, sharing all your favorite quotes and thoughts. So please continue to do that on Twitter, on LinkedIn. You can find me any of those places with the hashtag datafem. And without further ado, let's get to this episode. So to start off, let's go around the virtual table and introduce ourselves so that the audience knows who you are and how you got into data science or what you're up to right now. Hello, my name is Scarlett Winters. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having us on, Danielle. This is awesome. I'm a butch lesbian technologist hailing from and based in Chicago right now. I have five years of data experience empowering individuals, nonprofits, and healthcare leaders to harness data to reach their goals through data collection, analysis, and governance best practices. I started out in data and really discovered data science, data analytics as a field of study when I was back in undergrad studying political science, where I conducted original research on the impact of voter identification laws and the fact that the impact that they have on a federal, state, and local level on voter turnout rates and Democrat, uh, Democratic Party victories. So currently I lead analytics and visual uh, data visualization training for a leading healthcare SaaS company based out here in Chicago. I have a master's in information systems management from Loyola University's Quinlan School of Business. In my free time, I'm a freelance career consultant for marginalized folks looking to break into data and get into the data industry. And I'm also a martial artist. So I have a yellow belt and crap Maga. Scarlett, you sound like an absolute badass. That's awesome. <laughs> Everything you said. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> so I can go next. Hi, I'm Jeremy Mason, um, and I am uh, not exactly a data scientist. I actually work uh, in events, and I, I found my way into data science when I studied geographic information systems at the University of West Florida, um, sort of as a, as a mid-career change. I was a teacher for a long time before that. And um, I just found it really fascinating, uh, all of the things that could be done with data. Uh, I actually had transitioned uh, career-wise into organizing events. And, and after I, I learned about GIS and, by extension, data science, uh, I joined a company that organized a series of smaller data science conferences all around the United States and even internationally. Um, and so, you know, uh, I, I definitely got very plugged into the community. Um, obviously, with COVID-19 uh, happening, uh, conferences are kind of off the table. But, the, you know, the conversations that came out of those events are still very much uh, going on. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. 
Hi, my name is Kaylin Dawson. I got into data science as a concept uh, with some early database work in my career, but I didn't realize qualified as data science. So I got more into using what I just called Excel for analytics. And my boss at the time was really happy about it. And I did more sort of ad hoc academic data science work. And then I transitioned into uh, more management and system administration. Um, but with a new institute we just got at the university, I think I will have the opportunity to do more applicable data science work. I don't personally work in AI, but my direct colleagues do. Well, thank you for all introducing yourself. Let's just dive in to get started. I know that it is Pride Month, and I want to hear how this month has been different for your, all of you. It's crazy how much things are going on, you know, like... COVID is kind of preventing us from celebrating and going out doing the things we normally do. But um, I've found it really exciting to see all the energy from the Black community, given how Pride Month began at Stonewall. I, I think on a personal note, you know, obviously this Pride Month has been different, you know, not just for me as, as a Caucasian gay man, uh, but for <laughs> I think the entire country. Um, you know, because we have this crazy intersection, of course, of, you know, COVID-19 happening. And then, of course, this um, the, finally this very um, strong voice in support of black lives and against police brutality happening. Um, and, and it kind of um, has created this amazing feeling of intersectionality and in celebrating this month. Uh, it, obviously, um, you know, I'm not quite old enough to have been at Stonewall, but, um, you know, it, it's the, the root of it, the history of it, you know, started as, as a protest movement, as a riot. Um, and, you know, in, in a way, this Pride Month feels so much more authentic this time around, right? Because now we're actually talking again about uh, marginalized people and fighting for rights and fighting for our right to be healthy and fighting for the government to protect us as people. Um, and uh, I've seen uh, amazing personal examples of people across communities, whether marginalized or not, coming together to speak out uh, to these things. And so um, Pride Month has felt especially prideful. Not for me necessarily just as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, but as a, as a person that really believes that this country can move forward towards a more progressive future. Yeah, Jeremy, you hit the nail on the head with that. Um, that's definitely how I'm feeling with this too. The way I've been feeling, especially this month going into June, going into Pride Month, is I've been seeing uh, this conversation online of this isn't Pride Month, this is Wrath Month. And I think that's something that um, many of the folks I've been talking to who are in either the queer community or um, intersections of the queer and Black communities here and really thinking about social justice as it relates to these intersections, we've really taken that into stride this month. And I think it's about time, honestly, because, you know, we all know COVID-19 sucks. I mean, we don't want to be cooped up inside. We want to be out in the nice warm weather, you know, doing what we usually do. But I think this has really allowed us to reflect on Pride's roots, our Stonewall roots and where we come from, because Pride and queer liberation in general is rooted in anti-police, anti-racist activism. And I feel like coming into this era of, say, like, 
Bank of America pride floats during the parade, we've kind of gotten away from that. So this has allowed us to really take steps back and reflect on our roots and where do we go from here? So we're at this really crucial intersection of racial justice and really thinking about these different intersections and holding that close to us. And in a way, strangely enough, COVID-19 has allowed folks to be able to get out there and protest because if we were not in the middle of a pandemic right now, we would be going off to work. Like I would be commuting on the train nine to five and I would just be tired. Like I would still go out there and protest, but you know, during normal times, quote unquote, normal times, I can't say that for a lot of people. So I think lots of folks with our record breaking unemployment rates, people are inside. We don't have capitalism weighing down on us and preventing us from going out there. So it's definitely a strange time. This is definitely one for the history books. It definitely feels weird being a part of a chapter of history. Looking back 50 years later, us telling future generations what it was like to live during 2020, it's going to be a hell of a ride. It's already been a hell of a ride. Y'all don't see me nodding or smiling, but I am. I love what the two of you have said so far. I'm looking forward to hear what Kaylin has to say. Um, oh, dear. Yeah, putting you on the spot. But I definitely agree. I know that for most of Pride months in the recent past, I have been jet setting, trying to hit as many parades as possible and be on the scene and, you know, just take in several different cities, environments and excitement at this time. So it's definitely different not doing that. But what I've really, really enjoyed and been inspired by is seeing people's, especially members of the black queer community come out and write a lot of content, produce a lot of content on educating people about, you know, what their circumstances are, what the history is. So it's been really wholesome to learn from different members of the community that haven't taken the spotlight in my pride experiences in the past few years. It is a big difference. Um... I'm I'm incredibly lucky to have a job I kept and can work remotely. But the thing that I, I've been looking at in between um, the data science I must do for my work is uh, using data science to show the effects of things like protests and on flattening the curve. And some preliminary reports that I've been looking at had been showing that it wasn't actually protests that increased the rate of COVID um, contraction and infection in different cities primarily because protesters wore masks. Just that simple concept of, oh, hey, this is a thing that people can do to help protect each other, to help protect themselves. And, and people are doing it and it matters. And, and when you get some sort of actual data analytics involved, I think that's important to people at times when it may seem isolating and, and difficult to do something like participate in a protest. As far as Pride Month itself for me, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a very outside person when the outside has germs. So I'm extra cautious. Um, if I have to go out, I wear a mask, but I don't. And that means I'm not going to a protest. And that's kind of sad because I think without COVID, I would. And it's interesting to have that sort of emotional dichotomy, like knowing, knowing that a lot of people can because of COVID and knowing that it's precisely the reason I couldn't participate in something that I very much wish and want to. And they were, they were right by my street. I watched them from my balcony. They were protesting my area. I went uh, downstairs and handed out masks as long as I thought was safe. And that was 
I guess as close as I could feel to my personal local community in in a while. Kaylin, I may have seen you at one of those protests then. I definitely went. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'm not exactly a, a risk-averse person. Um, I don't know. Uh, to me, I you know, it, it is really interesting, this sort of, this intersection of, um, you know, the, the protests and then also this public health emergency that we have going on. And, and it certainly is making people do things that I think uh, sort of across the board, maybe they wouldn't normally do. Like to your case, you know, because there was a public health emergency, you know, you're a little bit more reticent to go out to the protests. At the same time, I think that because, um, you know, the world is so turned upside down now that we're in the middle of a pandemic and so many things are disrupted, it's made people, uh, to your point, Scarlett, exit, you know, this whole capitalist mindset uh, long enough to actually maybe step back and take a look at things with a little bit more of a critical eye and see the points behind the protests uh, in a way that maybe they haven't with, you know, all of the things that have led up to it in years past. Because certainly, in addition to George Floyd, there's been a long string of other examples of police brutality uh, in, in recent years and, and even before that against black people. So, you know, I think maybe some of the silence created by the pandemic has actually allowed these voices to finally get their due consideration. Um, I'll tell you from a public health perspective, just as a data point, um, I actually went to the protests here in Miami and I was very pleasantly surprised to see how serious people were actually being mindful of the pandemic as well. Uh, there were organizers on motorbikes driving through the crowd basically screaming at people to keep their distance from each other. And I did not see a single person without a mask. So, you know, I, I think that it, it's, it's interesting um, the way that these two things are interacting with each other, but also how people have really stepped up and have shown that they can be mindful of more than one thing at once. I love all the dichotomies that all of you are mentioning and bringing to light. It's, you know, really, it, it's so interesting and humbling to be at such a powerful intersection at this time. And I think capitalism is such a powerful draining force on even the data science industry being new. So I think that's a, you know, talking about how capitalism might be pushed to the back burner in some ways, given COVID um, and the opportunities that COVID has given for people to protest and um, reflect, talk more is a good way to transition into how we can get more representation of marginalized communities in this field, especially with the focus on the queer community. It's different to think about queer representation in data science than it is to think about, you know, people of color in data science, just because you don't necessarily know right off the bat where somebody interacts with the queer community. I mean, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But I know personally, going to a lot of events that I feel more comfortable when I'm able to meet a lot of people who are part of the LGBTQ community and can speak to that along with me. So I'd love to hear all of your takes um, and experiences about that and also strategies for how we can get more queer representation in data science um, in our careers and how important that is for all of us like on a scale. I know Scar Scarlett and I have talked about that it's incredibly important um, at 
individual companies to find that. I think the frustrating thing for me that I've encountered, um, and I don't think this is exclusive to data science, but more so tech in general, and I'm sure all industries in general too, but it certainly translates into data science. So if you have these companies that really need to consider, for one, how the queer community can be serviced through its products. So say if you're a healthcare company or you work in, I don't know, you work in some subset of the tech industry and there's a service they can provide that could meet need of a given population of a marginalized population. Really taking this into stride and not thinking about, okay, what's going to make me the most money, but how can I use my services for good? And that's where this whole idea of data for social good has really become a really prominent part of my life and something that I try to incorporate more into projects that I work on on the side or the career trajectories that I take, you know, especially thinking about my career as it relates to the pivotal part of history that we're in right now. So really thinking about these at a higher level, but really bringing that down to a more business or a company level too, in order for companies to reach this level of cognition where they're really taking in queer voices and queer needs. For one thing, principally, companies need to, first of all, hire and retain queer talent. And it's not just, like I said, it's not just about hiring queer talent. It's about retaining them. It's about making them feel like they're valued. So a struggle that a lot of these companies face with seeking out queer talent to begin with is they need to be able to seek out queer talent without assuming their gender or sexuality or outing somebody in the process of doing that. And companies, recruiters will probably stop here and be like, well, can't do it, you know, because you could tell off the bat someone's ethnicity or race, but you can't tell off the bat their sexuality. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that um, when we get to the AI models portion of this, but there are ways that queer talent does exist. You just get, recruiters have to know how to seek them out. You have queer tech affinity groups, many of which I'm a part of, queer in tech, out in tech. You have different diversity job boards that are focused specifically on seeking out populations of marginalized communities and helping them find jobs that welcome them. You also have LinkedIn affinity groups that house many of these different communities. There are ways to seek these people out and recruit them. Companies and recruiters just need to put in the work. Something else that companies need to do is they need to consult their queer employees and not act like they know everything. Just because somebody works in HR doesn't mean that they have this well-rounded understanding of and knowledge of what it's like to have a lived experience as part of a marginalized group. So companies need to sit back, listen to their queer employees and their concerns, and find ways to lift them up and give them a voice without tokenizing their experience. Scarlett, I think that's absolutely, um, you, you're, you're really making strong points here. Um, you know, but it's... It's one thing to say that, you know, companies uh, are, are only paying lip service. I do think there are some companies out there that, that do have some pretty strong uh, diversity officers. Certainly, I've had conversations when I've been organizing events with some of those diversity officers that are trying to either uh, do their own outreach or work with recruiters to outreach uh, not only queer people, but also uh, women. But it's no secret, right, that in, in tech, that it's a male-dominated field and certainly, uh, you know, a cisgender-dominated <laughs> field as well. Um, so uh, I, I think that there's a lot that can be done to elevate, um, you know, those voices even further. One thing that, that really strikes me, though, is what you said about retaining 
talent. And I think that that's obviously something that's a problem sort of across the board in the industry. Um, and a lot of it to, in the conversations that I've had, um, with, with data scientists at, at all levels of their career has really come down to if they feel supported by their immediate supervisors, right? And also if there's uh, adequate mentorship with, within a company, right? So it's not just enough to get this talent. The onus is on the company to, to get the talent, to train the talent, to retain the talent by creating a sense of community within the company, right? To make them want to stay. If you put everybody in their silos and you throw everybody in their cubicles and there's nothing to actually build community, then why would someone actually stay? And that's even harder now, right, with, with the pandemic. I think that we've, we've shown that uh, the, we don't actually need to go into an office anymore to do a lot of the work that we do. Uh, that's kind of been blown out of the water. So now, really, how do you build those communities? And that's really a question that I think that companies are going to need to focus on, um, to laser focus on in order to be successful, not just to grow and retain queer talent, but any talent. I definitely have experienced a lot of the same um, pressures from other environments that aren't tech focused, you know, seeing my colleagues and peers kind of feeling like showing their queer identity is rocking the boat which it's not, it's just who you are. I'm not saying that anybody goes out and talks a ton about their sexuality at work anyway, but there's just always an assumption that you have a personal life. And I do feel like there's some hesitation still to talk about that life if you're queer. And that that can be really painful depending on how much of a sharer you are and how much you want to connect with people at work. So how do we cultivate a culture that doesn't see queerness as a liability? Because definitely just speaking from my personal experience and environments I've been in, I definitely get a different reaction when I start talking about any aspect of my life, which usually being queer comes up right away you know um that's not something i have any intention of leaving out when i'm getting to know people um it just naturally comes up people definitely change the way they look at me i don't know if that's ever negative or positive but i would hope that there will be ways maybe um amplified by our transition into working at home to make that just less of a significant transition when we think about this idea that some companies might treat queerness as a liability, this thinking about it in the scope of COVID-19 and uh, all of you have brought up really interesting and really important points when thinking about the time that we're in right now. Because one thing that, uh, Jeremy, when you were talking about this idea of how do we retain talent during, especially during pandemic and when we're working at home, it really brought up some interesting thoughts in my head of how this relates to disability justice as well. Because before when uh, disabled folks would request um, work from home or different accommodations, people have had mixed experiences with this. And now we're at a point where this is just the norm. This is the time that we're in right now. So the question being, how do we cultivate a culture and industry where we don't see queerness as a liability? This goes hand in hand very well with other 
identities and other experiences, because I know that in my experience, um, I've had mixed experiences and mixed results. And I think a big reason for that is the mix of queer leadership I may or may not, might not have had during a given like job that I was in or part of my career that I was in at that time. And really just promoting education in the space that I'm in and having people confront internal biases, which inform this mindset of queerness as a liability. And I think in some ways it's hard to suss out whether or not leadership sees queerness as a liability. And if anyone has had different experiences with this, I would love to hear them. But in my experience, it's something that's only come out when a problem has occurred that's forced me to go to leadership with a problem or report discriminatory action. So a big part, uh, part of this on the other side of the coin is also empowering employees with the language to identify their discriminatory experiences and call them out. Because I was recently in a position where I was treated as a liability because of chronic pain, so I fell into the ADA or disability justice, and I was denied opportunities and training and room for growth because of this. But this discrimination was also driven in part by my queerness because it was a really bro-y, like, cis, straight, male-dominated environment but I didn't realize that discrimination was informed by my queerness at the time. So if I had had the language to advocate for myself wholeheartedly, it would have allowed me to demand my institution make XYZ changes and really be a lot more assertive in advocating for myself and illustrating the problem. So I think this is a two-part thing for me and a two-part problem. Leadership having um, the education and being able to confront internal biases, having more queer leadership to begin with, but also making sure that employees are empowered with the language to identify their experiences and really thinking about everything insofar as working from home, having the privilege to work from home, being in tech, what that's going to look like, how as leadership addresses queerness, addresses marginalized communities in the scope of working from home and not being face to face, what microaggressions will look like, what discrimination would look like, what marginalized population, what empowerment for those communities is going to look like in a business sense because a lot of companies are starting to grow when it comes to uplifting these voices. But what what is that going to look like in a work from home sense? Scarlett, you can't see it, but I'm literally here at home with like a pom-pom, like shaking it around. The only thing I would question you on though is why should the onus be on you, the worker, to speak up for yourself, right? I think that we really need to have a talk about what allyship is and why allyship needs to be put at the center of leadership theory these days, right? In a company setting. Because now, you know, we used to talk about having a seat at the table. Well, guess what? In the pandemic, there's no more tables, right? There's just Zoom. So even building a company culture these days is has suddenly become much more egalitarian in the way that literally there's no rooms. There's only these virtual rooms to be invited in. And the wonderful thing about that is those are data points. They are receipts. We know who was in a Zoom call at any one point. You know, so this is something that can actually be measured and tracked as we go forward to see if those voices are being representative or not, if they're not. But at the end of the day, you do have to have representation in a company and not just representation in a company, but you have to have representation and then connection with the company in order to really uh, move the needle here. And that can be easier in some industries than others. When I was organizing these conferences, uh, we would do it, do these micro conferences by industry. And it really struck me how different the cultures of companies were based on what industries they were, they were in. And so, you know, when I, 
was doing um, organizing around, say, like the financial services and insurance industries, you didn't see a whole lot of women at the table and certainly not a whole lot of queer people. Um, and if you did, you know, it's, you know, they were kind of, you know, all by themselves or maybe there was one other person there, um, you know, at their company. But, you know, certainly uh, no, no real effort was made you know, to connect them versus, you know, say if you were in advertising or media or social or even social media, you know, uh, that experience may look very, very different. So uh, I think it does depend on your industry as well. Um, but in this day and age, uh, if there's one thing that 2020 has taught all of us, it's that we are all equal. Equality is the the cornerstone, is the one big message that is coming out of out of all of this mess. And that companies are going to need, as you said before, to attract that talent, to retain that talent, to support that talent, uh, and not leave it up to the people that are in the company that identify as LGBT to support other uh, people that are LGBTQ+. You know, it's, it's up to all of us to support each other. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, to clarify um, what I was talking about, so in my experience, what this would look like in my head of, say, empowering employees with the language to identify experiences is something I've observed and um, something I'm gleaning from. This depends what representation looks like across the board. definitely depends on the industry you're a part of. So what this looks like for me is this ability to hold leadership accountable, but not have leadership lean on you. So I'll give a very recent example. So in uh, my company, we were um, very recently as uh, discussions around BLM really started exploding and taking place, we were tasked as employees with giving leadership feedback and ideas on what they could do to combat racial justice and anti-racism. And I know a lot of us, myself included, definitely did not feel comfortable with that, especially because we're a predominantly white company giving them feedback and um, insight on what they could do to combat anti-racism. We're not their DEI consultants. And that goes along with, you know, when we think about queer empowerment and what that's going to look like too. Mainly um, what my point getting at this uh, portion of this, of empowering employees with the language to identify experience and call them out, is the power that language could have for naming your experiences and really bringing people together to know that they're not alone. So insofar as having people come together to name their experiences and really come together, unionize, dare I say, to really, I think, relate to each other along the way and really build a sense of community. Because in the ideal world, leadership would know what to do. They would know how to empower their employees and uplift them. And in many cases, many of these companies are hitting the mark. Many companies are really starting to do the right things. And lean on their employees in the right ways and give them voices. But many companies, unfortunately, aren't there yet. So I think the question then becomes, how do we hold leadership accountable without being their unpaid DEI consultants, their unpaid diversity, equity, and inclusivity consultants? I think that one of the big things is, you know, and, and I agree with you, Scarlett, it, it shouldn't be on the, the people in any group to teach leadership how to do their jobs, right? <laughs> and, and, and how to, how to go forward. Um, but, you know, now we're in a situation where, you know, cult, company culture was built on actually people coming together for so long, right? And, and being able to bring people into the same physical space. And that's something that's blown out of the water now. So I think that we're going to end up seeing out of this pandemic, right? A complete rewrite 
of what culture building is. And my hope is that part of that is being able to open up the doors to a lot more voices, right? Where um, a lot of this sort of, you know, informal water cooler talk uh, ends up falling by the wayside and you end up having a lot more inclusion because now everything is just decentralized. I really do think that it's going to uh, impact in, in a very big way how marginalized groups are able to participate. I guess that's a good way to transition into how queer representation is within the models themselves. Yeah, it's really unfortunate what's going on with um, when we think about AI models and how queer representation is, or should I say misrepresentation, is happening in AI models right now. Because, you know, one thing that's going on is, you know, I think that some AI models are starting to at least say, hey, you know, queer people exist, but then it just stops there. Um, something to think about is, how in what ways AI models don't represent the diversity of the queer community. Because unfortunately, many of these sample sizes are often small and limited to cis, white, and only focusing on gay men and lesbian women. So it really upholds this gender binary and this idea that the white cis gay experience is representative of the queer experience, when we all know that's not true. So really thinking about the ways that AI models are using queer populations for the wrong reasons. So for an example of this would be in 2017, I think it was 2017, with the Stanford study that came out, which scraped photos from dating apps, Tinder, Grindr, et cetera, to predict whether or not someone was gay. And this in itself is inherently dangerous because it attributes queerness to something hereditary, which could then tell somebody from like a conversion therapy or a repressive government that, hey, if queerness is hereditary, that we could suss out who is queer, we could predict that and then do something about it. So it could really drive our organizations to identify and target their queer citizens or folks within an institution that could presumably be queer. So it gets incredibly dangerous. It gets incredibly deadly. And that's if queerness is being represented at all. Something else I found unfortunate is working in healthcare and seeing healthcare data and you know, seeing patient level data coming in from hospitals is unfortunately gender data. So different gender identities, they're not being taken into account when these hospitals collect data on their patients. And it definitely gets into some tricky territory then because we're thinking about the level of treatment, so biological sex versus the gender identity of the individual and what that's going to look like for the treatment of care and the scope of care. But then at what point does because you have many cases of caretakers and folks within the hospital system misgendering a patient and uh, discrediting their experience. So at what point does it get to be, hey, as a hospital, we need to start collecting this data and really taking into account somebody's gender identity and their lived experience? Because while they're with us at this hospital, while we're taking care of them, we need to make sure that we're taking care of them and uplifting them and making them feel like they're truly at home here. Something that um, is interesting within thinking about AI models specifically, not just data collection, but thinking about the specific models and methodology too, thinking about which methods, like where AI models are at right now when it comes to what kind of training methodology is going to be best for a machine to really learn 
when it comes to facial recognition or when it comes to reading IDs, what these different scenarios look like and how we actually train the model to get there. I have questions. <laughs> Not necessarily something to add, um, but I, I, I want to know from you, Scarlett, you know, um, I, I'm trying to really get to the ethics of this. Is gender identity and is sexuality a data point that should be tracked? It depends on the industry. In census data, it absolutely should be, because this dictates public planning and resources dispersing communities based on their unique needs. If we ever get to this point at the federal level, which I really hope that we do, especially next presidency, where they are collecting and then therefore aggregating data on queer and trans people, community leaders at all levels will be able to disperse resources to meet their unique needs. So. We won't get to that point unless we collect data on queer and trans populations. So pivoting over to healthcare data, then it's not a black and white solution. But for me, the way I see it, it all stems from whether or not the process is voluntary. Insofar as whether or not the hospital, the hospital or the clinic needs to have a voluntary optional intake field for the patient to input their gender identity or sexual orientation because this empowers the patient to self-identify if they want to, which can then inform the quality, the unique care that they receive. Especially because queer and trans folks experience specific health disparities, it's so important to track these trends, these patient populations, to influence research and create solutions to address systemic health disparities among trans people and among queer people. So the key to this question, again for me, is whether or not the individual is voluntarily disclosing their identity. Implicit and explicit bias exist on whether or not a caretaker or a physician can end up discriminating against a patient, either subconsciously or consciously, denying them quality or accurate care because they know the individual's sexual orientation or gender identity. It's a really thorny issue. Um, and, you know, it, it's, I, I think about, for example, um, you know, the decision in this census to not uh, ask questions pertaining to sexuality or gender identity, even though that's a data point that was collected, uh, I think, uh, only a few years ago. Um, and and it, it goes both ways, right? Because if you can aggregate some of this data, it, it really helps you uh, see trends that obviously you wouldn't be able to see if you didn't have these data points. But to your point, yes, it can be very damaging as well to actually have that kind of, um, you know, uh, that, that information in your hands when it comes to an, any particular individual. Um, and and, and I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a real interesting balance that I'm just sort of throwing out to the floor. My experience with data analysis, that was such a default bucket. Whether it mattered to the analysis or not, it was such a common default thing that I think it's, it, it might need to address an entire mentality to, to get around thinking in a gender binary as a permanently available option for all data just because. And then to think of more of what would actually matter, what sort of bucket to put the data in would matter, because that's the whole point of analysis, to analyze the trends of similar types of data. And, and what if we stopped thinking of males and females as so similar to each other as just a binary category? What if that was changed? This leads us to wonder then, in what way should we represent gender, not as a binary, but as a spectrum and lived experience, especially from a medical standpoint by way of the unique health disparities LGBTQ people face. 
because queer people face a variety of health disparities that are left unaddressed for many reasons, such as implicit and explicit bias, in addition to the lack of data illustrating our unique medical experiences. This data gap then leads to a deficit in research on queer health. New research is emerging now to fill in these gaps, and many progressive medical practices have begun requesting gender identity and sexual orientation as optional fields. And this is so important because, for one, it tells the patient they're welcome at that practice. For two, it gives them the option to disclose their gender identity and sexual orientation, which, if they choose to do so, can give providers the necessary context to provide the patient with a personalized treatment plan which considers the systemic injustices that queer people face. And then lastly, when these fields are made available for people to fill out voluntarily, it paints a more holistic picture of health patterns in the United States, which can drive and do drive research representation and care overall. One of my favorite questions to ask just in general about fixing models that are biased is how much are we going to be expected to go back through models that have already been created, especially in healthcare data, because I know that healthcare data is built off previous data sets. How much responsibility is there going to be to go back yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely a fabulous question. When answering this question, I consider what are the intentions behind a machine learning algorithm, especially in healthcare data? A goal might be to provide clinicians with diagnostic support to create a targeted health plan for an individual or a group of patients even. So to reach this goal, you have to heavily rely on the data's quality and inclusivity to have an effective model. This unfortunately is not the reality because care plans driven by machine learning algorithms then instead risk detrimental and deadly fallacies due to missing data, small sample sizes, and implicit and explicit bias by a hospital staff. The healthcare system is needlessly complex and often confusing because of that patients might not sufficiently fill out their intake sheets or document unnecessary symptoms because you just have so much paperwork to fill out. Plus, many patients have a fractured medical history without a consistent paper trail, especially for folks of lower socioeconomic statuses, people who've moved around a lot, many of whom are queer and black people. This leads to unrepresentative sample sizes, especially when building out patient populations and illustrating a group's long-term continuum of care. So when answering the question, data or the model, which one do we revisit? My answer is neither. It's not just the model. You need to revisit not only the data collection methods, such as missing electronic health record data, but how it's driven. Racism influences the data. Homophobia and transphobia influence the data. Therefore, racism, homophobia, and transphobia manifest in the models and therefore manifest in the care provided or not provided. I want to ask y'all, how data literate do we need everyone else who is not working deep in the models to be? I would love to sit here and say that if only we had a data literate public, then uh, everything would make sense and everything would be better. Um, but I think that we have seen not only this year, but recent years that it's just, it's not true. I think definitely at a company level, you know, if you have people uh, whose workflows intersect with data science at any particular level, yes, you've got to have some kind of data literacy. You have to know what work people are doing. You have to understand what data means, what uh, the assumptions were, 
uh, what the blind spots are uh, in order to make any kind of real decisions based off of the data. Otherwise, you know, really, what are we doing here? But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that, you know, for, for the larger and the very important conversations that we're having in 2020, it's not so much that data is shaping them. You know, I think that really uh, we have to lean more into, you know, the stories that we tell and, and our mythology in order to really get our point across. You know, I think back to um, the movement for, uh, you know, gay marriage. And, you know, obviously that was something that... that uh, has been an activist point for a while before, you know, it, it was finally given to us by the Supreme Court. But, you know, there was all this data about, you know, how outcomes were improved if people are in a cohabitating couple uh, for both of the individuals and, you know, all kinds of data points showing why, you know, this was beneficial. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a simple message that love is love that really captured the imagination of the American people and allowed um, this to be something that was accepted more widely. I think that we're seeing something very similar with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement right now. And that, you know, really it's, it's our ability not just to uh, collect data and to tell stories with data, but then to really move that into something that's more profound and more human and easily digestible, uh, that's really going to see change happen. That is such a huge thing, thinking about this idea of data literacy and what level data literacy should be expected and the conversations that we're having now, and especially in terms of queer liberation and thinking about it as a personal narrative and also something that is meant to be understood by the public and at what sense, at what levels. So something that I've been thinking about when we think about data literacy, promoting this idea of discerning what is and what is not a reliable data-driven study, especially because we have this trend of fake news where this, these quote-unquote news sources are throwing numbers out there, um, fake or false numbers driven off of really questionable data and research, largely in part because it sells this narrative that the readership already wants to hear. So it promotes this idea of this echo chamber. So thinking on a technical level of what data literacy would look like and what should be expected of the general public, it's the same critical thinking skills that oh, this idea to really question the authority of the research, the articles that are given to us. So I think this inherent ability to question authority on some level in the sense of you're given a news source, you're given an article, let me ask myself these questions. So say, for example, how was the data collected? Um, what is this article trying to highlight? What's the source? Is this a credible source? Um, is this an open source thing that could be edited by anyone? Say, for example, Wikipedia, this ability to just read standard graphs. So thinking about the axes on a graph, the ticks. So does it make sense? Like, do the ticks make sense to the data? Are they showing these super high bars on a bar graph to show this dramatic difference in point A versus point B to really drive a narrative and point across? And also knowing, and I've been harping on this a lot, but knowing what makes a good sample size. Say you have survey data that says it's representative of the American population, but if you're phone dialing people, if you're calling people's home phone number, you're probably more likely to get older generations, older folks, and missing out on those younger populations and what they have to say. 
So what both of you said, I'm reminded of attempting to convince people that universal health care is a great idea because essentially we're paying for it anyway and it's too expensive to pay for it anyway. And that data does tell a story, but it's not the kind of story that connects with people. So how do you get the point across? That's also why we need to use data and data literacy together to, to tell the story that does connect with people and not just a story that is accurate, I guess. Um, and then and then getting people to question the source and the validity of data um, reminds me of the anti-vax issue that was based on a very, very bad report that just sort of got out of hand as far as people not examining it soon enough and, and, and people not taking the examination seriously. So I wonder where that plays in. It's like enough data literacy to latch on to something. Is that even a data literacy question or is that a sort of critical thinking question? A lot to think about. Ellen, I think you're spot on. Like, honestly, sometimes I worry that data gets in the way. Because if you lead an argument with data, you are assuming that your audience cares about data. And I think if anything is apparent now, it's that a lot of the world doesn't care about data. You know, and so there has to be that filter. There has to be this distillation of the insights that we get from data and then weaving that into these personal narratives, like you mentioned, Scarlett, in order to make clear and persuasive arguments for people uh, to lead better lives. I think when, when it comes to data literacy, I guess the question of is it critical thinking or is it something more is so important um, because nowadays people just aren't being taught the same things that you know we were growing up i see it all the time with writing and it's interesting for me because i first got into data science stats coding out of a fear of being irrelevant um because i saw that code was becoming a language that people were really paying attention to and you know, I was afraid that if I did not get into that space that I would be left behind in the future. Um, and fear can be a really, really good motivator. But what really has kept me in the data space is just a love for programming and a love for having these conversations and, um, you know, statistical process. You know, I, I fell in love with that. So I think, you know, if we're asking like how to get more people to care about data, you know, fear may be a good motivator in the sense of, you know, look what happens when we have faulty data. There can be a whole worldwide crisis. You know, there can be really bad um, consequences, but that's not going to make people stay in the discussion. I mean, obviously that, that, that could be applied to anything, um, you know, especially, people getting involved in the protests, um, you know, protesting racial discrimination and violence, you know, maybe that is out of fear for some people right now. And if fear is the only thing that motivates you to get involved, it's not going to keep you there. So I think, you know, I just want to, I want to get your last thoughts, all of you on how we as people who are data literate, um, how can we make sure that people stay motivated to love data and love consuming it and love interacting over it? So I, I think that the ability of 
people increasingly to tell dynamic and engaging stories uh, using data, using impressive visualizations, right? Like, um, you know, Botley, for example, has has a whole bunch of visualizations that, that really help tell stories. And, and you know, um, I, I think that in, in the hands of the right kind of storyteller, news organizations, for example, like the New York Times, um, that data can be really compelling. But, you know, like anything, uh, I, I think that there has to be a heavy amount of contextualization uh, in order to, for, for the general public, in order to really uh, appreciate data and to get excited by data. And, you know, it's also a, a practice, right? And in order to to be excited by data, you have to have a steady drip of it coming into your life. I, I think uh, what, what I hope to see more and more is more engaging and accessible visualizations that um, are really designed for a wide audience to get people excited and engaged with data and uh, with the things that are happening, you know, right around them in their everyday lives. It really gets into this idea that I was thinking of, of how do we make data seem more accessible? How do we get away from this idea that thinking about data, thinking about biases, think about AI models, those have to be confined to this ivory tower. I feel like the data industry and the discussions that we have around data outside the general public might think of it as, oh, this is ivory tower, like this is inaccessible we make data and make conversations around data literacy much more accessible to the general public, then it won't be as intimidating for people. As, as far as how to address data literacy and, and use it to move forward progressively to tell stories, to connect people, like you've all said, it's, it's definitely a challenge. Um, I, I think, I think between what you've said, you, it's, it's, it's almost like it's almost a recipe, almost developed. Like you have to examine your data critically. You have to understand where it came from. You have to communicate it to your audience. And between all of that, like, I, I think, I think we understand it, but I, I think it's, it's, it's going to be difficult to combat how easy it is to tweak a bar chart and make someone think they're looking at something that isn't real. And as far as bias in data, I think. I think bias in data can be addressed in a number of ways. Like you can address, you can address the methodology, and you can address what we use it for. Uh, but there's always going to be bias. It's going to affect science, and we just need to understand this as we evaluate the science that we're looking at. One hundred percent. This whole conversation started with with Pride Month. I'd love to see an effort uh, for you know more things that are more visualizations that are targeted for say our group or for, um, you know, in support of Black Lives Matter or, you know, just data that can help us tell our stories and help us get to know uh, each other better as humans on a whole nother level. Thank you so much, all of you. This was an incredibly candid conversation and we covered so much ground with all of these topics. So I hope that the audience really learns something and feels something about all of these things. You know where to find me. Please respond on Twitter. Please reach out on LinkedIn and share your thoughts. As always, if you want to support and invest in the content that you're hearing throughout season two, you can visit the Patreon page for this podcast at patreon.com slash datafem and sign up for any of the tiers. 
which will give you exclusive content and more communication with me and the group. So there are many ways to be engaged, and I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. Yeah.